we'll go ahead and get started. We're, we're going to be uh, moving through some scriptures again this morning, but let, let me pray for us. Uh, Father, we're just so thankful to gather together in the company of the saints. It's so comforting and so precious to be in the midst of those who love you and love your word and desire to learn and to grow from that word and your spirit and your just beautiful work of sanctifying us and conforming us. Father, we ponder this year that lies ahead of us and of all the things that we will encounter, I pray that there will be one thing central in our hearts and minds and that is just to grow in our love and reverence and worship and sharing of your glorious ways and your precious offer. Lord, we're so thankful this morning to have the good news of David Kemp being home and beginning that journey. We're so thankful to be a body that will come around the Kemps and just love on them. And we're so thankful that that is the gift of the body to each one of us as we find our needs that go beyond ourselves. And Lord, we just want to exalt you. We just want to praise you. We want to do that this morning. Always and forever, in your ever-precious name, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, um, as you remember from a couple of weeks ago, we, we have been working through this downward slide and the reality that we've learned um, so many truths, and I've listened to so many different sermons on this passage, so many different commentators from hundreds of years, and uh, it is, it is as every bit as precise and startling today as it was, you know, for Spurgeon in the downgrade and all the way back. Um, but we had talked, you know, as the week before Christmas, just the desire to begin to show and, and focus in on the God who is doing this work. I, I don't know that we always fully think about it that way, but this passage makes it so, so very clear to us. This morning, I, I want to continue a, a, the little bit of the detour, though, because we are, we are, we are moving into this Romans 128, which is really the, the societal norms that are produced from a giving over of God, a, a removal of the restraints is one of the best ways to think about what's at the heart of this passage. It is, it is the removal of the restraint of the sinful desires that we have times a large portion of that society that then gives that entire society over to an unrestrained society and then gives rise or visibility to frankly what has always been there which is just every perversion you can imagine every sinful thing 
becomes acceptable and normal, you know? We were talking to Gloria this morning on the way down. I mean, the, the, the mass amount, if you allow it in, of just the sexualization of society today is stunning. The merchandising of women in particular, it's stunning. Just go to the mall. It's stunning. And that is, that is, I mean, you look around the mall and there's our families, there's our children. It is, we're being immersed in this. And this is this Romans 1, through 32, when you see the whole society totally accepting it as norm and giving hearty approval to it, right? It's very surreal. It's very dark. Um, so we've done some of these detours and we're in another one. I brought up this term contradistinction a couple of weeks ago, distinctly contrary to one another. And the more I've thought about that, and I want to build on that this morning, while God is turning people over to the desires of their heart, that's very important as you begin to look at this passage. Read it carefully. What you see is God is simply reaching a point where an individual just so insatiably wants their sin that God removes his restraint and allows them to pursue that sin. That is why sin is always pregnant with more sin. And in some of the lifestyles that are described that we've already been through, the insatiable nature of that sin, much like the drug addict, just destroys them. We see it just rampant. Right. This morning, though, I, I want to take our thoughts from that downward slide that through the fall we're all on, and the fact that what is happening to those on that downward slide is the image of God is being removed. The, the, the consciousness that God gave us of him is being removed. The restraints are being removed, right? And things are growing worse and worse and worse. At the very same time, and this is the contradistinction, at the very same time, God is, as we've talked, snatching people off of that road and is moving them. And what I think you'll see if you study this carefully enough, the exact opposite direction. He's restoring the image of God that we had in communion with him. He's restraining us. He's sanctifying us. And he's preparing us for heaven. Which is, as you will see from the scriptures, on one hand, he's abandoning a people. On the other hand, he's drawing them into an intimacy that we don't always ponder, but I want us to ponder it this morning in the next couple of weeks. Listen to the music that's laid out for this morning with the passage. It's just beautiful. I love the way that happens. It just is so encouraging. I want you to think about this kind of summary of this morning's study and into next week. Think about from where we were redeemed, we've been studying that carefully right off of this wide road. Some of us farther down it than others. It's just on its way down to less and less restraint. From where we were redeemed, 
so that we can look unto whom we have been redeemed by, and that's what we're going to focus on this morning. But I want you to think about this. From whom have we been redeemed from? Many would like to say it was the devil. It was sin. It was myself. But who have we been redeemed from? God and the wrath of God. That abandoning wrath of God. <laughs> so don't, right? That, that to me just, when we think about our evangelism, right? You are under the wrath of God. Does that mean anything to you? But we are redeemed from God and the wrath of God. But here's what next week's study will get into. To what purpose? To what end? And I think you'll see that, I hope, beautifully unpacked. There's a little bit of a hint where we see each of the elect Snatched from that narrow, that wide, wide road, that wide gate, unto this great shepherd. And here's what I want you to think about when we get to next week's study. And all are redeemed from all of time, and all are returned with the shepherd back to the Father. And I'd mentioned 1 Corinthians 15 last two weeks ago, but just spend some time in that chapter. Because there's a point in time where the redemption is complete. Christ has fully finished. All the elect are redeemed. And Christ in a very real, expressed by them way is now complete. Because his bride is complete. And very much in Jewish tradition, he's going to return he himself and his bride complete back to the Father to begin eternity. That, there's just nothing more precious than that. Nothing more precious, and we're going to spend time. But this morning, I want you to look carefully at what's being done right now, right? In, uh, in this, this day, this time of redemption and realize that just as Jesus said as he was always in these combative discussions with the Pharisees I and the Father are working we're still working I think you'll see this morning what that work is and just how intimate it is for the triune God so with that in mind, I want to walk you through kind of a breadcrumb trail of this unfolding work. And, and you'll have to go to the Wayback Machine for the unfathomable privilege of humanity in Genesis 1.26 that we touched on last week, which is two weeks ago. Then God said, Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image. So important. Because that's precisely what God in his abandoning wrath is taking away the God consciousness. So this is where we started, humanity. In our image, after our likeness, just immediately conjures up Romans 12, right? One and two. And this is important. And let them have dominion over. Very important. Because I don't know how much time passed, but it didn't take very long for Adam to forsake that commandment and responsibility and privilege and immediately 
there was this shift that occurred with Adam's command to have dominion over all the things on the earth to all of a sudden you find Satan when Christ comes is revealed as who? The ruler. He's the one. Interesting, right? Pay attention to that when we get farther out into Christ's continuing work. And then we see in Genesis 3.15 just an incredibly important passage that basically is the gateway for all that we have revealed to us in the Scriptures. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. There's a lot packed in there as it's unpacked by Scripture. The woman is the woman. The woman is Israel, right? But there's war going on there. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Offspring being seed, which has very significant meaning as you trace that word out. He shall bruise your head, a fatal blow, as we know. And you shall bruise his heel, he says to Satan. I have a bruised heel this morning, providentially. A big rock came up and flipped over and hit me right in the back of the heel. And it hurts, right? It hurts. That, that, that was a, a painful blow to the heel that Christ observes over time but this one that's coming will bruise your head Satan so that this this view of what's coming that really unpacks the entirety of both humanity in the flesh and in the spirit does it not it's just all right there We then see this next little glimmer of hope coming out of the flood and into Genesis 22 and this familiar passage in verse 10. And I don't, this passage just never really lets go of me. Um, We can all just try to imagine if we were Abraham at this point. the test of his faith to sacrifice his own son, his beloved son, trusting that God would resurrect him because of the promise God made to him. Man, just think about how we can build our faith around that. Where are we weak in all of that, right? Where are the idols of our heart that need to be laid down and put to death so that we can fully trust in God and just turn it all over to Him so that we can trust in His promises? (laughs) Nothing shows that better than this passage and the faith that we can all pray for and aspire to. Verse 10, Then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. I mean, think about that. He is there. It is... I don't know exactly how he was going to go about it, but it, that was the moment of no return for Abraham. Yeah, I think about that. How silent 
Isaac is in this passage. And it makes you wonder, was he just as trusting as his father was? Right? It's a great point. And he's quite young at this age, right? To slaughter his son. But the angel, thank goodness, but God, there he comes. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Those beautiful words that you see from these old-timey saints that encounter the Lord like this. Here I am, right? Just no baggage, <laughs> no yeah buts, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you, what? Fear God. And there's a wonderful book, Where Have All the God Fears Gone? Read it. Because fearing God is kind of like, what? What are you talking about? That's not the God I'm, I don't fear God. They don't even realize it's the reverential love for God that comes from knowing what God has done despite our sinful ways and what it actually deserved, right? Those who, I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And there you get to see the picture. Because as we talked about this passage before, the Father gave his only Son, his beloved Son. And there was no stopping it, right? I think Abraham and Isaac are given to us so that it can be personal and intimate. And we can get real about what happened on that cross and how graciously the son <laughs> went to that cross to honor his father. There's part of that picture, isn't it? It's just wonderful. And then look at verse 13, and we begin to see this Genesis 3.15 unpacking and getting a little wider. Because now it invokes this idea of a sacrificial animal. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. See the worship that we've talked about all along, which was the problem at Romans 1.18. It was an issue of worship, self-styled worship, Cain, God-honoring worship, Abel. You see it right there. You see it right here. Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide so that all of Israel would know and all that they were supposed to take the light to would know that the Lord will provide a way for this propitiatory work to take place. And that's what we're gonna unpack a little more this morning. So I'm just walking you through. The, the grand sweep of redemption, redemption that's taking place through the completion of the elect, right? We see in Isaiah 42, a beautiful passage. So another breadcrumb here where we see this chosen servant of God. Isaiah 42 verse 1 says, Behold, my servant... Whom I uphold, the ESV says, my 
chosen. Okay, and that is the word the elect from, from the Hebrew language. So in some very surreal way, Christ was the first elect of this grand work of redemption. And the way to think about that, sometime in our finite minds who think linear, right, in chronos time, there was a point in eternity where the, in the perfect solitariness of our triune God, it was determined that creation would take place, humanity would be created, they would fall, and Christ would redeem them on behalf of the Father through his sacrificial propitiatory work. Think about that, right? Which will just make so much more precious your salvation because it was not of us at all, right? Which is what Scripture just so beautifully speaks. And again, we are the undeserving beneficiaries of the most glorious work of our triune God you could ever imagine. And we should just let that well up in us all the time. My chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. And here comes some eschatology from Isaiah. He will bring forth justice to the nations. How Wonderful that will be. But does that mean he's not bringing justice to the nations right now? Like right now? What is the justice that he's bringing that's very visible to us? That rises right out of Romans 1. The justice is God is giving the nations over to the very thing they most desire. And that is to make God go away. How convenient that they ask for his abandoning wrath. Because that's exactly what they get. Isn't that surreal to think about and watching unfold? When you look at the mass movements in this country alone, that is a mind that has been turned over and unable to even think properly. So there is justice. It's amazing to think that the justice is to be turned over to the sinful desires of our heart that we might now reap what we sow. Yeah, fearful, isn't it? That's what we were talking to Gloria. That she was talking about how she was at grandma's and some of the shows that were, you know, she had to kind of guard her mind a little bit, right? You do have to guard your mind. But you have to feed your mind with a heart that's turned to God. It's completely devoted to God or the mind will get drawn into this cesspool and begin to think, Romans 1.32, that it's all perfectly socially acceptable and normal. And we are called out of that, right? As it happens. And again, what I'm trying to do is show us while God is abandoning 
them, what is he doing to us? So I want to open into this shepherd motif that we see, this shepherd persona that we see run through scriptures. And what I want you to see is this morning in particular, as we begin this new year, just how intimate the triune God's love is for the unlovable saints. How sacrificial it is, how intimate it is, and how particular it is. Psalm 23, beautiful. But I want you to look at the language here. We've talked about this from day. The Lord is my shepherd. Not the shepherd. It is my shepherd. That very personal relationship with the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. And David just provokes the question, what is he doing in me, right? As my shepherd? Well, just listen to this. I shall not want, but boy, do we want? I know. This is one that just should stop us cold. Because what David is saying is, if you have the shepherd, you're in need or want of nothing. You have everything you could ever imagine, but the world has convinced you otherwise, right? He says, I shall not want. Now, I love this language, especially as I was first being saved. And I was reading these things, and I was realizing this is a work he's doing in me. And he's going to make sure of it. And what a comfort that was to me as the world was just trying to rip me back to my previous life. My work, my family, my religion, right? How comforting it was to hear these words so personal about me. That's what I want you to hear. This is about you, Nancy. This is about each of us that belong to the Lord. Listen to this. Verse 2. He makes me, love that language, lie down in green pastures, immersed in the word of God. Just feast on the word of God. He leads me beside still waters. Take the quiet time to enjoy Christ, to enjoy the word of God, to enjoy this intimacy. Those still waters were the calm places you could take a long, cool drink, right? He restores my soul. And boy, I tell you, for me, coming out of false works-based religion, it was so comforting to know that it was he that restored my soul, not all my constant efforts and hanging on to my good works. Just put those things right on the altar and light them on fire. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of, there it is, righteousness. Doesn't that take you right to Romans 1, 18 and 21? The ungodliness, the unrighteousness that he's abandoning people to, he's leading us into what? Godliness and righteousness. Isn't that beautiful? This is this distinctly contrary paths. 
where the war from Genesis 3.15 is. And what I want to convey is, just look how beautifully cohesive Scripture is. From cover to cover, this is the story. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for all you wonderful people. For his name's sake. I want you to pay attention to that. It's to his glory. And we're going to see that unfold by the Father and the Spirit of God who inspired these scriptures beautifully. And we said it a couple weeks ago. It is so not about us. It's really not. In any, if there's any shred of it that is about us, it is because of the work they're doing in us and through us. <laughs> For his name's sake. And I just want you to, I want to remind you again, with that in mind, of John 5, 17. Most of you know it very well, but Jesus answered them in the midst of this intense elongated about a three to four month battle with these people that were following Jesus around to attack him. Jesus said, my father is working until now and I am working. And they are continuing that work. In that case, it was the invalid that they snatched right off of the ground, right into salvation, right into the kingdom, right in front of all these people. And Jesus says, the Father's working right now. You just saw it. I'm working right now. I want you to move to John 10 with me. And look, I, I, am, I have no doubt if you love Psalm 23, you love John 10, because John 10 just unpacks Psalm 23 with this beautiful shepherd. But I want to just pull in and emphasize the intimacy and particularity of this passage. L listen to how precise Jesus is talking about his sheep. It's not some generic nebulous bunch to them. It is my sheep. And you'll see that unfold. Look at John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd. And here comes the story, unpacked by Jesus himself. The shepherd and the lamb speaks. I am the good shepherd. Verse 11 of John 10. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Look on down to verse 14. I am the good shepherd. And listen to how precise this is. I know my own. And what's interesting is as lost as we are, and often even before our realization of what God has done in us, at some point through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, 
we hear the voice of truth. All of a sudden, the truth becomes the truth to us. The truth of God becomes the truth to us. And it begins to draw us. And for some, it was a long time. For others, it was like wham. But there, there is a work that's being done, and Jesus is speaking to it here. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. How well do they know me? Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my sheep, my life for the sheep. Just implicit intimacy between the triune God and their sheep and those whom they are redeeming. And right now, as you all know, there are people out there who have no clue what's about to hit them. When all of a sudden, out of their sinful downward slide, the voice becomes real. And you begin to question, and you begin to see, and you begin to hear. And all of a sudden, people come into your life, and they witness, and they share the gospel. And at some point, you realize you have a shepherd <laughs> because the triune God was working all the way through that, even unknown to you. That's how our salvation comes about. Sadly, most people see it began when I walked down the altar and I said the prayer, right? They're not incompatible, <laughs> but it is that underlying work that the shepherd is doing, leading us, teaching us, this is truth. Right? And it's just so beautifully laid out in, in this, this section. And here comes the Gentile church. Verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. What a shocker to the Jews, right? Who took all that God had given them and they just circled their arms around it and said, it's mine and nobody can have it when the actual commandment was to take it to all the nations. You see what they did? And before we, we get this about it, how often do we keep the gospel amongst us saints because it's safe instead of taking it out to a world that is most likely going to poke you in the eye or worse, Right? Just a personal confession, right? It's, it's difficult in a lot of environments. But he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. Hear the emphatic nature of those. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock. I'll bring them all together, one shepherd. And for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. You think that's an emphasis in here? It was Isaiah 49. You don't have to go there. But where we see, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That's what he told Israel, right? Israel was the beautiful cradle of Christ. John 27, 10, 27, sorry. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. Boy, how emphatic. When Jesus repeats it over and over again, he's trying to get through to people, right? And they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Utterly, 
confusing, easy to reject when you're thinking from the flesh. They will never perish. Because they doesn't take them long to say, well, what about Abraham? He perished, right? Jesus is talking on a whole nother eternal plane here. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Certainty, protection. How do I know no one will snatch them out of my hand? My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So now you're in Christ who is in the Father and you are going nowhere. You are theirs which is why the backsliding saint will always return when confronted lovingly and counseled into the word of God because they will hear that voice through all that darkness that they're sliding into, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I had a friend just blow it away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it seems everybody seems to have a pair of scissors to make themselves a Jefferson Bible. Because I don't like that passage, right? I got too much vested in the idea that I, right? Yep. Yeah, didn't fit. Yeah. Look at John 14. Thank you, Ryan. Just the beautiful promise of the future intimacy. So Jesus just builds on this intimacy with these men in the upper room, John 14. And he, we know this passage so well, but think of it in the context of this intimacy we have with Christ and this promise. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? At this point, do you, do you still think I'm a liar? That I would deceive you? That's what he, right? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. There's another event coming, folks. I'm coming back to get you. And that's going to take us right into next week. So I want you to think about, as we've talked about the shepherd motif and the sheep. Two weeks ago, we touched on John 17, where Jesus opens up that prayer about all that the Father has given me to give eternal life, John 17, 2, second half, to all whom you have given me. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, Father, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Redemption is now sealed. Backwards and forwards, this moment of Christ's propitiatory work has completed the work of redemption for all those whom the Father will give me. It's amazing to think about it, isn't it? I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, this is where we're going to launch into next week. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And we're going to take a look at what that glory looks like and what makes all this complete. And if it doesn't blow us away, I just don't know what will. 
quite honestly. So as we kind of wind down this morning, let's go back to 2 Peter 3.18 that we ended on a couple of weeks ago and look at the exhortation for us. Verse 18 says, but grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There it is, right? There, there is the simplest command. Grow in grace what's been given to you that you're so undeserving of. And knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Consume the scriptures in their totality so that you will know Christ more and more and understand what they have done and your love for them will just grow exponentially and it's a love that is kind of other world right it's not of this world to him Peter says be the glory both now and to the day of eternity and so we see here this distinctly contrary groups of people Genesis 3.15, Romans 8, right? Those who seek the flesh, those who seek the spirit. You see, it always breaks down into those two categories. And Paul probably says it as well as anybody in 1 Corinthians 18. Go with me there for just a minute. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 1. And look at verse 18. And here's how you can see these two, at least in their current state, because some of them will totally flip and go the other direction, the snatch off the wide road, right? 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. There is a reason they poke you in the eye. Or worse, it is complete foolishness to them because they are convinced they're just fine. And they certainly don't need some God of your making to convince me that I'm not fine. So go away, Ryan, with all your Jesus stuff. But you might just be the first one in a long line of people who are going to witness that truth to them. Right? But to us who are, I love this, being saved, there it is, somewhere on that continuum, right? could very well be on that wide road sliding farther into sin that we're being saved as we get to the bottom of the consequence of that way. It is the power of God. Paul always wanted to make sure we knew that. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. There's the two groups, those that are perishing those that are being saved, and the dividing line over time is the reaction to the Word of God and its truth, right? And Scripture has given us that so, so clearly. So I want to transition with this thought into next week. To Him be the glory. Consider, if you look at the book of Hosea, how, how Scripture presents Christ as the groom, And often we see that, that that groom and in other parables, he goes away for a long time, doesn't he? 
He's gone away for a long time now. In Hosea, we see a very unfaithful bride, but the bride is still the bride. And I think that we can all say that we are that unfaithful bride. To them be the glory, right? But all the while, he, being Christ, was always perfectly faithful, regardless of her unfaithfulness in his eternal love for her. Why? Because the father of the groom chose the bride as a love gift for him, as we see in the Jewish betrothal tradition. And therefore, regardless of how unfaithful she was, he would be faithful to her in honor and reverence to the Father, and therefore faithful in his redemption and purification of her as that love gift. And we're going to see that. If you read 1 Corinthians 15, you'll see that is precisely what's going on all the while why Christ is putting his enemies under his feet. The downward slide and those who are stunningly snatched off of it out of an eternal love within the triune God that brought into their family an undeserving bride who proves herself to be undeserving every day. <laughs> right. So we'll pick that up next week and then we'll get back into our final passage in Romans 128. Thank you guys. You're welcome.